Hey there, it's Mike Adolph. I'm a ACMG Mountain Guide. I'm the current technical director for the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, ACMG, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. One of the myths is, well, I can't do any of the classic tours because they're too easy, or you know, if you've got some random um, geographic area that you did a multi-day tour in, uh, we're gonna go there and we're gonna have a look and check it out. You don't want to be out there um, pushing the terrain or the conditions for the sake of checking the bar. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. We are proudly presented through the support of VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. We are happy to have additional support for this episode from Six Point Engineering out of Nelson, British Columbia, who specializes in engineering, design, avalanche risk assessments, mountain safety services, and project management. Greg Johnson and his team of engineers and avalanche professionals have a unique skill set that include hazard assessment, infrastructure design, avalanche forecasting, and avalanche control programs. They serve the oil and gas, transportation, hydroelectric, mining, ski area, and land development industries. If you're scratching your head over some difficult questions for your next project in the mountains, look no further than Six Point Engineering. You can find out more at www.sixpointeng.com. Check out our interview with Greg back on episode 5.19 to hear more. This is the return of Wes Greg. With a bit of a cold, so don't mind the nasally tone of my voice. I'm honored to be back as a host this year and starting my episodes off answering the questions of what is the ACMG? And then there'll be another one that we'll put out that is what is the CSGA? Often people ask what is the difference between the two guiding streams in Canada? Or what are the guiding streams in Canada? Well, in this digital age, we can of course go online and look up the two associations, the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, or ACMG, and the Canadian Ski Guide Association, the CSGA. But I do feel there is value in having current directors and leaders in these associations describe those programs. There are two installments in this series, as I previously mentioned. The first part, I'll be talking to ACMG Technical Director, Mike Adolph. Mike is an ACMG IFMGA mountain guide and also the current ACMG technical director. Mike is currently residing in Alberta. Mike maintains a diverse winter guiding background that includes some mechanized skiing, ski touring, ice and alpine climbing, as well as working as an educator on the ACMG training and assessment program winter courses. Mike has been working as a guide for 25 years and completed his mountain guide certification in 2007. So tune in. If you've got questions about what program might be best for you, we do our best here to get those answers right from the source. Please enjoy my interview with Mike Adolph from the ACMG. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Good. How are you doing, Wes? Oh, I'm doing fine. Where are you at right now? Uh, I'm actually at our city location here uh, in Red Deer, Alberta. Red Deer, there's a lot of mountains in Red Deer, Alberta. <laughs> we, have, we, 
we have a local ski area, Ashley Canyon, and uh, I spend quite a bit of time with my two boys um, skiing there. Uh, most of my mountain operations are based out of the Nordig area, which is about an hour and a half west of here. Oh, cool. So let's just dive right into it. Let's start off with who you are and what your current role is. Cool. Uh, yeah, like I mentioned, I'm Mike Adolf. Uh, I'm a mountain guide based out of the Nordeg area, or well, I guess central Alberta. You know, I spend some time in Red Deer. Uh, most of my mountain work is out of the Nordeg uh, area. You know, I have uh, a lot of hats that I wear for work. Uh, currently, the uh, Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, uh, ACMG. I'll probably use that acronym a little bit. I think it's going to come up during the podcast. Uh, anyways, I'm the ACMG Technical Director. Uh, I actively work as a lead guide for uh, White Wilderness Heli Skiing, which is a heli ski operation based out of Terrace, BC. Uh, I work on the uh, ACMG training and assessment program as an instructor on the ski and alpine programs. Uh, I also do a fair amount of independent guiding uh, in the form of ski touring and a little bit of ice climbing work. Um, Probably more important than all that stuff is uh, I'm a happy father of two boys, uh, Lucas and Tyler, and a, a really grateful husband to my wife, Jennifer, who is super understanding uh, of all the commitments that come and all the time away that come from having uh, this kind of a workload. <laughs> yeah, amen to that. I, I can empathize with that. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, how old are your boys? Uh, they're eight, 10 and 8. Actually, the youngest one's turning 9 here this year. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've got two boys that are four and six. So, oh, wow. Um, Fun times. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, it's busy. Come on, Mike, tell me it gets easier. <laughs> it does, but I think, okay. uh, you know, it's, it, it's uh, they're hard yards, right? So I think there's a lot of kind of teamwork <laughs> and uh, just making sure that they have the tools to make it easier for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, and... and um, I, I immediately have a question about like that work-life balance, which I didn't put in our list. And, and uh, maybe we'll touch on that later if I remember, because I always enjoy kind of hearing that portion about because of the time commitment that guiding and, and um, working in that industry takes you away from your family. I always find it's very interesting to see how each person uh, manages that work-life balance. Yeah, to, well, uh, I don't know, maintain. fire away. How are you maintaining that work-life balance between your family and, and your career and your absences? Well, I think probably the, the biggest one is just recognizing that the time away does take a bit of a toll. So, uh, you know, when I get home, I really try to make sure that even though I might be super bagged uh, or tired from, you know, a week of ski touring or, or whatever it might be, to just try and get right in there um, and uh, participate with all of the the daily kind of nine to five stuff that needs to happen to keep everybody happy. Um, any opportunities I have to kind of get the boys out, uh, you know, when I'm home, just try and capitalize on that and, and keep the stoke level high. And then I'm a pretty big proponent of making sure that uh, I have the morning and evening uh, FaceTimes. You know, it's kind of great with uh, the advance in technology to be able to kind of video call with everybody. So I think those are, those are some of the big ones for sure. Ooh, I really like that tip. I might, I might try to employ that this winter. Although I think at Skeena they don't, I don't think we have that great internet. So there might just be uh, quick texts or something via inReach. Yeah, I think just um, some kind of yeah, 
Yeah. Great. Yeah. Some kind of communication, right? No, that's awesome. That's, that's so great. That's so great. You know, um, it's always really hard to walk away from your family in the winter time and, and, um, and get out and, but I, yeah, I think you're right. You know, it does take its toll and it's important to recognize that and, and do your best when you come back to offer the support that, that that's required. Cool. So let's get into your past here. Let's talk about, uh, where did you grow up and when did you first put skis on your feet? Um, well, I grew up in uh, Spruce Grove, um, which is about 15 minutes west of Edmonton, uh, about two and a half hours uh, east of Jasper. And uh, my dad was actually a pretty big skier. Uh, well, I wouldn't, maybe not pretty big, but uh, we certainly spent quite a bit of time at the resort. Um, and I actually didn't put skis on. I started out, I was a skateboarder as a kid, and so snowboarding was kind of the natural winter progression. And so I'd spend my, uh, winter weekends as many as, uh, we could afford, I guess, um, hitting the resorts, uh, in Jasper and Lake Louise, uh, et cetera. And then my start into kind of more professional level or working towards more professional level winter travel, um, was ice climbing. I kind of came into my, uh, guides courses on the Alpine end of things first. And so, you know, kind of going through the rock program and then into the Alpine guiding program. And so, you know, I spent quite a bit of time uh, ice climbing. And then as I neared completion with that certification, I started skiing. And uh, at that time, um, you know, snowboarding or splitboarding wasn't really an option. It wasn't really a thing back then. Um, and so I kind of worked on uh, honing my ski skills so that I could be successful. How was that transition from um, going from snowboarding to skiing? Did you, did you have some real challenges there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I got a funny story. Um, you know, one of the first courses that you do as an outdoor professional working in the wintertime is the Canadian Avalanche Association Operations Level 1. And, uh, you know, I still largely recreating on a snowboard. Uh, I had all my ice climbing gear. And uh, so I got a pair of the old, some, some of the listeners might remember the Silveretta 404 binding that would actually clip onto a plastic boot. And so I showed up for my uh, Ops 1 with a pair of Scarpa Vegas and Silveretta 404s. <laughs> Did they ask you to leave? <laughs> it's actually funny. Um, you know, one of the iconic uh, alpine climbers and mountain guides out there, James Blench, um, was one of my instructors. And, uh, you know, I knew who he was. I had read, you know, lots of stories and reports about some of the things that he'd gotten up to. And we're riding up the chairlift together. And I asked him, you know, hey, James, I'm, I'm really struggling skiing in this setup. You know, what should I do? And he just looked at me. <laughs> he said, you should get some touring gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think many of us started there. Right? I started with Alpine Trekkers, you know, full Alpine gear with nothing but Alpine Trekkers. So I can empathize with the Silverettas for sure. Um, so then what was it that sort of steered you into the into that level one ops? What was it that made you really think, you know what, I think I want to make a go of, of being an uh a professional in the avalanche industry. Yeah, we, this is another kind of interesting story. Um, so I, I, I kind of get a kick out of being able to tell people that I got my uh, start mountain guiding uh, through Girl Guides Canada. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, my sister was, uh, you know, she's 
very involved with uh, Girl Guides as she was kind of growing up. And my mom was a pretty uh, supportive uh, parent and actually ended up, uh, you know, leading her, her group for, for quite a number of years. And she, she kind of got tired of the kind of cookie baking trips and was looking to do uh, more things in the outdoors with the girls. And, you know, one thing kind of transitioned into another and they were out caving and rock climbing and of course, word gets home that, uh, hey, you know, rock climbing is pretty cool. You should check it out. And so I did. And uh, uh, somewhere along the way, um, our parents met uh, a person who was looking for a business partner to start uh, an outdoor education business. And one mm. thing led to another. Uh, in 1995, uh, our family and their family built the Center for Outdoor Education. And, uh, you know, I kind of did some basic training, um, along the way as I was kind of coming into my late teens and early twenties and, uh, realized quite, a, quite quickly that, uh, you know, the training I was getting there wasn't really what, uh, was the standard in Canada. And so I started looking towards, you know, what was the standard and obviously came across uh, the ACMG and thought, okay, you know, this is, this is the path I want to take. How do I get started? Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. That sounds like a whole other podcast episode in <laughs> itself. <laughs> um, is that is that education center still operative? Uh, it is, though. It, we've we uh, we're in the period of transition. Um, Mom and dad are uh, moving on, kind of into retirement, and my wife and I had to make a hard decision, you know, as to whether or not we wanted to kind of carry on the business or kind of do our own thing. And uh, you know, we're kind of late in life parents. We're the, the classic kind of kids at 40. Um, and I think our focus is going to be more on trying to provide, uh, more of an international kind of experience for our kids as they're coming through their teen years. So it's just not really oh, wow. a great fit. And yeah, so, no yeah, it, it looks like, uh, the business is uh, selling right now and, uh, we're kind of uh, moving off, uh, from our commitments there. Oh, that's super cool. That's super amazing. And then, so with that, like providing international opportunities for your kids, do you have any plans in the in the very new f- near future to be shifting? If you if you care to talk about it, of course. Yeah. Well, like I say, it could be a whole other podcast, but uh, um, we're, we're our hope is to be able to uh, travel with the kids for a couple of years uh, through their preteen, early teen years and look at uh, having them complete their schooling online um, and just look at doing things that, you know, we like doing. So stuff on the water, rock climbing adventures, kiteboarding, um, that kind of stuff. And uh, just try and make it all work, uh, living out of a camper for a couple of years. Cool. That sounds, that sounds super fun. <laughs> right on. That'll be awesome. That'll be a great experience for the boys. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... Um, for the listeners, one of the reasons why I have Mike here on the call is is um, I came up with this idea over the summer that I wanted to really expose to the avalanche communities and our listeners that may not know the different certification uh, processes within Canada to become a ski guide. And um, as Mike has mentioned, he's the technical director from the ACMG, and so let's start diving into some questions as to what the ACMG is and who they are. So Mike, if you don't mind, if you could please just give us a little uh, synopsis on who and what is the ACMG. Okay, cool. Um, 
So as I mentioned, uh, ACMG it stands for the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. Um, and the ACMG has been the voice uh, for all aspects of mountain guiding and instruction in Canada for over half a century. Uh, we, we, we were kind of incepted in uh, 1963. Uh, we set the professional standards for mountain guides, alpine guides, ski guides, rock guides, climbing instructors, hiking guides, and via ferrata guides. And uh, another cool thing is we were uh, one of the first, we were the first country outside of Europe to be recognized by the International Federation of Mountain Guides Associations. Uh, you know, our members are recognized and sought out as professionals in all aspects of protecting the public interest and safety. You know, that includes mountain travel, instructional work. Uh, we have members working in commercial and industrial safety, mountain rescue, and backcountry uh, risk management. Cool. Now, the ACMG does have that long-standing history. And what are some of the major changes that we've seen over the last 50 years within the ACMG? Because a lot of things have changed, and specifically, actually, a lot of things have changed in the last few years with regards to uh, certain things in, in life with diversity and inclusion. Yeah, you no. Know, when I saw that question, it's like, well, sixty years is a long time, um, and yeah, certainly lots has happened. Uh, you know, another bit of a backstory is uh, it was Parks Canada that really kind of gave us the nudge uh, into becoming a professional association, uh, just trying to fill a need for uh, professionals working in the mountains and uh, you know uh, having the skill sets available to kind of work with parks as uh, mountain rescue professionals. Um, 1972, I guess that would have been the first big change. We, uh, got our IFMGA recognition. Uh, you know, after that time, there was a considerable, a considerable, sorry, marbles in my mouth, uh, amount of effort, uh, put into refining our training and assessment program. Um, the ACMG has also published three technical handbooks uh, over the years. Uh, the technical handbook for uh, mountain guides, uh, the hiking guide manual, and our climbing gym instructor manual. And probably uh, of real significance is the manuals have been in for revision. Um, this has been a multi-year process um, that's nearing completion. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. And uh, the final revision will have uh, three, three different manuals. So core guiding skills manual, a climbing manual, and a skiing manual with the page count of well into the thousands. Uh, I think those are some of the, the key changes. Um, more recently, you know, looking, looking inwards at our association and, and how we're managing things, uh, dealing with mental health, diversity and equity and inclusivity have been uh, some pretty big and important topics um, that we're really trying to make some huge changes or huge advances in. Yeah, and I can I could imagine that that can be a tough nut to crack. Um, you know, myself working, having worked in a, a male-dominated industry, sometimes those steps can be met with a bit of resistance from the senior members. How are you feeling that transition into the new methodology that's being embraced by the ACMG? Kind of like climbing a mountain, step by step. I think, uh, 
you know, certainly everybody is entitled to your, to an opinion, but I think more importantly, everybody's entitled to their basic rights and uh, understanding what that is, is the first step. And then taking steps towards making sure that uh, we're maintaining that level of respect uh, is kind of where we're headed. Yeah. And that's, that's amazing. Now, Maybe let's, uh, in case some of the listeners don't know what the IFMGA is, you want to just, um, just give us a brief overview of what an international mountain guide expectations are and how the ACMG fits into that model. So the IFMGA, so it's the, again, another acronym, um, the International uh, Federation of Mountain Guides Associations is basically... Uh, an association that I should have had a date here, but uh, you know they were basically created uh, to manage mountain safety and uh, working professionals in the mountains in the European Alps, uh, dating back probably more than a century ago. Um, and part of the creation of the association was to establish a standards platform. So basically, this is what uh, it looks like, and this is what's required of individuals to be entered into a training program and then complete a final certification. And so they uh, maintain and uphold that standard. And then for any uh, countries that are active IFMGA members, it's their obligation to uh, continue to uphold that IFMGA platform. I think that would kind of be the short answer. Um, yeah. And, and, and then so with an IFMGA guide, you're able to guide worldwide once you get that certification. Is that correct? Yes, but when we say worldwide, we also have to remember that uh, there's various legal working requirements that have to be met. So um, lots of the countries uh, within the association have a, a reciprocity um, agreement, meaning that you know me being trained in Canada, having a, a mountain guide status, I can go to a European country and my certification will be recognized, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I can just show up and start working. You know, I have to go through all the pro proper channels with government and land managers and uh, whatever else have you. And, and some of the associations help out uh, quite a bit with that and some, uh, you know, a little less. So uh, the, the, the concept of I'm going to go working world, worldwide just needs to be tempered a little bit with uh, some of the other legal responsibilities that you have um, prior to actually starting work. Oh, perfect. That's an awesome, that's an awesome note. Um, so now let's, let's dive into, you know, what does it take? What, what is the application process? And when we get through that, maybe we can touch on some of the common shortcomings and challenges that applicants face. Uh, sure. Um, you know, I guess I'd start by, uh, just pointing out, I think there's some links here, um, at the end of the podcast, uh, to the ACMG website and to the training and assessment program website. Um, the application process itself is laid out uh, in detail there. So that's definitely a good place to start. Um, one of the big things, and I think probably the most important thing uh, for folks to consider is to just plan ahead. Um, uh, that, that means, you know, like what, how are you going to come up with the time to fulfill all of the training requirements and to continue training while also meeting your, your daily nine to five um, things that happen in life and uh, some financial planning. Uh, the courses aren't cheap. Um, spending all of your time 
all of your free time, I guess, out there uh, accruing hours and, and training, that's not cheap either. So making sure you have all that stuff in order and, and really keeping in mind too that, you know, once you get started um, and you complete your apprentice certification, it's not over. You've got three years. There's uh, We have a timelines policy where you need to uh, complete the certification. Uh, so take your final certificate exam three years after completing the apprentice exam. So I think that... You know, big picture, uh, you know, high level kind of planning. That's the really important piece there. Um, once all that's done, I think you know, just taking a t taking the time to really review um, what's listed as far as the prerequisites, uh, and make sure that uh, you've got an adequate amount of trips um, to be able to submit on the resume. That's super important. Um, we also have a movement screening process that's a prerequisite to application. And so that's an in-movement um, screening. Uh, there's nine different uh, movement screenings being offered this year. Uh, we have some in Whistler, Revelstoke, Golden, and Lake Louise. And you need to have a successful movement screening to be able to uh, start the application process. So making sure you have enough trips, passing the movement screening, those are all kind of first steps and then basically submitting a neatly uh, compiled application. Um, you know, if things are kind of jarbled and, and dates are not really aligned and references are hard to track down, then that really kind of uh, moves your, your application uh, in a direction away from the top of the pile. So just making sure that things are, you know, neatly done and then just getting it on time. Um, and that's really uh, the application process in a nutshell, I think. Really making sure that you have a realistic idea as to what the overall time commitments are going to be and having a plan for how you're going to meet those commitments. So that's super important. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for myself, when I've thought about the ACMG and it's, it's those exact things that kind of made me take a step back um, at my age where you're like, well, do I really have the time? Do I, you know, um, and, and it, it's very, it's very interesting. So what, on average, what do you find, um, if you have this information, if you don't, that's okay. Um, how many applicants per year do you generally get? So, uh, upwards of 80, uh, some years more. And so those 80 applicants are applying for uh, 20 spots that are available. So it's a fairly competitive program. And uh, definitely uh, in an applicant's interest to, like I said, just set aside the time, be realistic. And, uh, you know, if you're going to go for it, you want an application that's going to be on the top of the pile. With that in mind, what are some resources and activities that an applicant can use if they find they're struggling with the application process? You know, there's no secret sauce there. Um, I think uh, if... You know, I had a chance to talk with uh, Jeff Osler, who's our uh, operations manager for the training and assessment program. And uh, we kind of batted this one down a little bit, or sorry, we batted this one around. <laughs> we discussed it uh, a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's diversity in the, uh, the skills resume um, that is usually the roadblock. So, you know, getting all of the acquired days in one snowpack region that's not going to cut it. It's just not diverse enough. And so as part of that planning, uh, 
piece, making sure that you have intentions to visit a variety of different snowpack regions um, over a couple of seasons, right? I think it's, it's an unrealistic goal to, I shouldn't say unrealistic, but a very hard to attain goal to, you know, decide, let's say in January, um, that, yeah, you know what, I'm going to apply for the uh, ski guide program next year and then get after it and, and be able to manage to get enough trips in, uh, to be able to submit the resume, uh, come fall time. The, there's so many challenges, right? I mean, there's work-life challenges that might prevent uh, you from getting out. Uh, you know, we, we always try to plan ahead and, and uh, put aside all these uh, days that we're going to devote to training and, and accruing uh, trips for our resume, but the conditions might not be great, right? And, and I think a really important message that I'd like to communicate and that the training and assessment program would like to communicate is that you know, if you're out there pushing the limits of the terrain or the conditions just to tick a box for your resume, that's not, that's not something that we're promoting. Um, you know, it should definitely be reasonable and kind of within your, your risk tolerance and your, your given safety margins um, when you're out there uh, gaining your experience. Yeah, and I think that's a valid point to make, right? I mean, these people are applying for a position to be a guide that are going to be making those decisions for people who may not have the experience to know how to make those decisions for themselves. So, yeah, I think it's important to remember not to push your limits, just to tick that box off and uh, and put yourself in any kind of position that you, you may put yourself at risk or somebody else at risk. Yeah, exactly. Um, just just to suit the timing, right? You know, and, yeah. and life always has its way of throwing you curveballs. And um, no, that's really good. I, I, I super appreciate that. You know, I got, that, sorry uh, to interrupt. I do uh, just another thing kind of uh, twinged on me there. Um, you know, there's, there's some myths out there that uh, if you're, you know, you're trying to do some of the longer um, trips for, for the resume, because uh, I think there, you know, there's some multi-day, trips and expectations um, that we have as prerequisites. And, uh, you know, one of the myths is, well, I can't do any of the classic tours because, you know, they're too easy or, you know, they're not, they won't know um, the the multi-day trip uh, area that uh, I'll be submitting in. And um, when we're going through and reviewing all of the uh, applications and the trips that are submitted, we actually, like, we're right in there. We've got Google Earth fat maps up you know if you've got some random um, geographic area that you did a multi-day tour in uh, we're going to go there and we're going to have a look and, and check it out and then uh, you know you can be creative too with the multi-day tours um, you know leave the tent behind and uh, go and you know do some winter uh, snow shelter building and and work on that skill because that's a that's a really important one too right we need to be super comfortable out there in in all environments especially during the winter time and have the uh, skills to back it up Oh, that's a super good point because that's one of the things I was I was you know thinking about living in the in the Williams Lake area and the Caribou. You know, for me to get down to do a Bugs Traverse or even the Wapta Traverse is is a is a big commitment. And I was like, well, you know, there's I could piece together a traverse up here locally, and it's good to know because it, you know, like um, being in the industry now and and getting a chance to talk to a lot of people that are aspiring ACMG guides or aspiring CSGA guides a lot of them are like no nah, man you're not going to get in unless you do the bugs like you got to do the bugs 
And it's good to know that, you know, those aren't, those aren't the prerequisites. The prerequisite is the multi-day is what yeah. I'm understanding from you. It doesn't matter where it no. is. Um, it, as long as it's, um, you know, for me, it's, there's no complex glaciated terrain up in the caribou close by. Right. It's, you know, I can't get to it by walking. I'd have to fly a helicopter to get yeah. to it. And, uh, so, you know, I think, I think that's a good, that's a very good point and a, and a good one to, uh, your, your helicopter point actually, to touch on. I mean, we might talk about it later. Um, but you know, trying to, uh, overcome some of those roadblocks. One of the things that, uh, I would do is, you know, gather uh, 10 or 12 like-minded individuals, friends, whatever, you know, I'd just be like, okay, you have to have this basic skill set, and I'm going to take you out there. And we just split the heli bill. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's one of the things that, uh, we've talked about. We've, we've discovered some forestry cabins that have been abandoned and they've offered them up for sale for a very cheap price. And, uh, we've talked about creating a, a society so that then we can start offering this as like a, community fly-in cabin right and so that's kind of one of the things and it's on a path that i've been looking at this big traverse but there's parts of the geography that would make that traverse a little bit challenging right. when you have to go valley bottom oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's thick bush yeah. Yeah, you want to go on a high um, but anyways here. i digress yeah exactly exactly last season would have been the season to do mm, it probably yeah. um so now you guys have made changes in the movement um, assessment. I, I gathered this information from a peer of mine. He had indicated that the, that they've now made these changes. Do you mind going over what those changes are in the in the movement screening? Uh, it's basically um, you know prior to this coming season of applications, we would ask for uh, in video uh, submission of your movement screening, and then on. Uh, the mechanized skiing module, you would do a rescreening on the course. And now it's been, the, the video submission has been replaced by an in-person movement screening. You know, we really at times struggled with trying to have the same consistency between uh, videographers. I mean, a lot of the times the iPhones are great. Um, and I mean, you know, they do a wonderful job of capturing the trip, but sometimes it just makes it really hard uh, for the assessors to see uh, what they actually want to see to make a, a confident decision on you know whether a person should get in, so that's that's the big change. Yeah, and that sounds like a a, a change in a in a positive frame. I remember when I re- I looked at that and I was like, oh yeah, video review. That's not bad. That's a bit tricky. You know, I used a lot of video review as a freestyle ski coach, and uh, it's definitely helpful. But nef- nothing ever beats eyes. Yeah, on. exactly. Yeah. You know, because then you can see things that the video might not depict. Um, now, do you guys, are there expectations on uh, ski ability? Because, you know, I have met some people that are, are applicants in the program that are like yourself that are coming from an alpine background. Um, what are some tools that those people that may not be from the ski side... And what, what are some things that perhaps you could suggest to help them along in their movement side to increase their chances and also help them with their own ski ability? Um, you know, I guess the, the first one, 
uh, maybe I can just relate this a little bit to what I did. I mean, I was actually uh, working um, a, a charitable event with uh, Barry Blanchard, who was also kind of an Alpine-centric uh, person as he went through his courses. And I asked Barry, I said, you know, what's the, what's the secret sauce, Barry? And he said, you know what? <laughs> I struggled with it. And uh, his advice was to just get out as much as you, as much as you could and uh, take some uh, professional instruction. And so I did that, and I made the commitment to actually ski for a couple of seasons back-to-back. So I actually went to New Zealand. Um, you know, I'd work uh, doing my ice climbing thing here and then uh, spend a part of the summer um, overseas uh, skiing as a ski patroller. Just, I mean, that was really... I think for me, that brought a lot of the kind of fitness and overall endurance um, uh, to the table for me. I don't know that uh, the ski patroller has the, and I'm not trying to poke a finger at ski patrollers, but you know, you're kind of wearing the heavy pack <laughs> and you've got uh, bundles of rope in your arm and stakes and stuff like that. So the technical side of things maybe doesn't progress very well, but certainly the fitness and the endurance and the stamina comes along by just spending lots and lots of time out there um, yeah, that would be kind of my, my suggestion is just make sure that, you know, the fitness endurance stamina is at a super high level. And, uh, when you're there, you know, just have somebody kind of come in and provide a bit of professional, uh, critique on, on your, on your movement and your technique. Yeah. Yeah. And then from the opposite side of the coin, um, what about like a skier centric applicant who perhaps struggles with the rope? or climbing side of, of things. Um, it's essentially the same thing, right? It's probably advised for them to go get instruction and, you know, start putting the time. Yeah, exactly. And you know, uh, one of the, uh, I think if, if you've got a really strong skiing background, but your, your, your rope handling, rope working skills are maybe lacking a little bit, um, start sport climbing, you know, that's super good just with like, uh, creating muscle memory for working with ropes, coiling ropes, all that stuff. Because I mean, when we're out in the mountains and uh, you've got all the gear on the gloves and you're trying to kind of move things along, having to spend that extra bit of mental energy to just make sure that the rope handling's at a, at a high level um, takes away from your ability to like look ahead and say, okay, well, where's the line? You know, what should I be thinking about? So, you know, picking up some of those uh, rope skills during the summertime doing, uh, you know, sport climbing or maybe some general mountaineering stuff is super good. And, and then, uh, practicing with it at home, um, this might sound a little nerdy, but when I was getting started with the, the guides courses, you know, I almost religiously have a piece of cord somewhere nearby just to practice the knots and practice everything. And one of my first mentors actually kind of said, well, you got to be able to do this stuff in the dark behind your back with a cold shower going, right? So, I'm not suggesting that people need to do that, but, you know, having that degree of comfort, um, in, you know, the, the basic knots that we use as guides and stuff out there certainly goes a long way to freeing up mental capacity to focus on other more important things. Yeah, exactly. And that's a good point. I remember that when I, when I came into line work originally and, you know, it was, um, it was beer penalties, right? Like if you didn't tie your knots quick enough, right? And if you, or if you didn't know how to tie them, then it was, then it was, you got a real rasin. So it was the same thing. A lot of nights sitting in front of the TV with a piece of rope, just tying bowlings yeah. and 
tying in square knots and tying knots, yeah. right? And, um, no, that's good. That's a good. That's a good point. Um, so, once a guide becomes fully certified, what are the responsibilities accepted from an ACMG ski guide, an ACMG alpine guide, and an IFMGA mountain guide? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I'm just going to generalize the uh, the expectations or the responsibilities expected um, from a fully certified guide. So whether that's ski, alpine, IFMG, mountain guide, whatever have you. I mean, we're out there and uh, we're we're highly trained to provide experience-based uh, decisions um, in the field, and that's uh, in an effort to kind of balance the overall trip objective with the the risks that you might be facing. Um, you know, a really important part of that equation is making sure that there's open communication. So communicating the potential risks and uh, making sure that uh, you've had that discussion with the folks that you're out with and that uh, what you're proposing is within their uh, comfort levels or maybe what they're proposing. You know, oftentimes people have this idea that I want to go do objective X, Y, Z. And uh, if you don't really tell them about it. Maybe they didn't know that you had to travel in close proximity to multiple ice falls and uh, you, there's no way to can kind of control the risk there other than moving quickly. Um, so just making sure that that open dialogue uh, happens and, and everybody is fully aware uh, of what to expect. And then, you know, it's the responsibility of the, the guide to communicate when maybe things are veering away from what would have been the acceptable risk and communicating that and coming up with reasonable options. And sometimes the options are great, you know, maybe it just means you're going to go ski a different aspect or go see something a little smaller, but, you know, sometimes it might mean that uh, you're scrubbing the trip. So, I mean, having that, uh, or uh, knowing that that's, you know, something that you should be expecting uh, from the guide. Um, another really important part is we are working out there as professionals and, uh, that does mean that, uh, the person, the, the certified guide that you're out there with, uh, will be working, um, with the proper permissions from the various land managers and, uh, carrying appropriate levels of insurance for the trips that they're conducting. Um, you know, another thing, and, and it's not really a dark thing to talk about, but, uh, accidents do happen. And so it's, it's an expectation. You, should, they, you could have the expectation from your guide that they have all of the proper uh, rescue equipment to deal with an emergency situation right down from, you know, a toboggan uh, to be able to haul an injured person to uh, the appropriate radio or sat phone or uh, satellite uh, emergency communication devices to get the message out. And, uh, you know, with that in mind too, um, we do have an obligation to help others. And so, you know, if you're out there ski touring or on a ski mountaineering trip and there's another party that is in need of, you know, mercy help, uh, it's the responsibility of the guide to uh, go over there and provide what assistance they can. Cool. No, that's really good. Now, what about from, like, managing the guest's expectations? What kind of role does that play right yeah uh, you know i think uh you did have that one on the list and you know it's one of those things that's kind of it seems to be ever changing or, or evolving as uh we move into the next generation of uh, ski touring clientele or heli ski guests or, or whatever and i think uh, we all know that things do change um 
And, and you know, I really believe that uh, our membership and uh, the other IFMGA's guides working out there recognize that one of the easiest ways to meet um, all those expectations is through, you know, a high level of professional conduct. Uh, that goes a long ways to addressing it. And, you know, with professional conduct, that comes with things like, uh, like I said uh, earlier, you know, really thorough risk communication, making sure that you understand what the expectation is and, and that they understand, you know, whether or not it can uh, uh, realistically be met. Um, positive uh, public interaction with the other folks that are recreating out there. Um, that's super important. And then uh, respecting you know, diversity, equity, and inclusivity, all that stuff goes a long way, I think, to meeting uh, the expectations that are out there. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. We, we kind of already touched on diversity, inclusion, and, and um, you know, that's, that's become a, a hot topic of discussion, and rightly so. Um, one of the things that I'm always very fascinated with being somebody that, um, that struggles with... Um, with uh, depression and anxiety, what is the ACMG, what is their stance and policy on mental health? And what is offered to members and students of the program if they're struggling through their own mental health issues? Uh, you know, for us, it's the top priority. Um, uh, last year, we took, uh, I guess it would be a big step. Um, we've actually hired, uh, it's a kind of a, an all-encompassing position, so a, a diversity, equity, and inclusivity and uh, mental health manager, uh, Aurora Boren Claire. You know, and Aurora started working uh, tirelessly to develop um, some of the functioning DNI and mental health policy that, that was missing in our organization. Um, our members uh, have opportunities to participate in CPD events with Aurora uh, regarding those topics. And, you know, for students and members that maybe are more specifically uh, struggling with mental health challenges, um, Aurora is kind of the first step that we have. And so reaching out really, uh, if anything, just to kind of lay the framework for what some of those initial steps might be. And then uh, Aurora is there to provide a bit of direction um, for folks uh, towards the road to uh, recovery. Oh, that's, that's awesome. When you're out, recreating or when other uh, potential members or potential applicants approach you, what do you like to see from an up-and-coming professional? Um, you know, I think probably the biggest one is just really being aware of what that uh, high standard of professionalism looks like and uh, really kind of carrying that forward and, and setting an example um, for other folks that are out there. Uh, you know, it's really important, I think, to... Uh, especially if you're just coming into it, to remember that being flexible and willing to adapt uh, to the terrain, to the conditions, to the group is all super important. Uh, working as a guide, that's like something that you're doing all the time. It's nonstop. Um, you know, I think the other thing, and I've kind of hit on this a bunch, is just maintaining that open communication with the group. You know, if you're just out there recreationally ski touring, having those moments for discussion. And if you're working, just making sure that... Uh, you're maintaining that open dialogue throughout the day so that people really have a, a good understanding as to what they're getting into. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Now, um, we all know, like, um, it's a numbers game when you're out traveling in the mountains. Do you care to share a story of your training path 
as to where you are now and any advice you have for any aspiring guides or avalanche professionals? You know, I, we had mentioned right at the uh, the start here that uh, you, you don't want to be out there um, pushing the terrain or the conditions for the sake of checking the box. And I certainly have a few of those um, where maybe I was on the uh, the upper end um, of the scale and uh, lots of them, you know, they, they have relatively positive outcomes, um, but, uh, you know, real surprises. You know, there's one, uh, we were doing some skiing up in the uh, Columbia Icefields area, at, you know, really kind of hotspot Parker's Ridge. I'm sure some of the listeners even know where that is. Um, and we're skiing the bigger features. So we're not skiing the, the kind of the easier, more mellow stuff. We're out in the steeps. And uh, not really much in the way of snowpack concerns, but we did have quite a bit of new snow and it had been super cold and it was early season. And uh, we were just getting set up to, you know, ski our descent. And I thought, well, you know, we should have a break. We've been going for a bit. And while I was stomping a platform for our lunch spot, I ended up boot triggering um, the entire slope. Like it went size three, three and a half. And so I was kind of like a whoa. You know, I wasn't, that was not something I was actually anticipating that day. It ended up failing on facet layers um, just from a bit of a crust that had started early season. Uh, you know, I think probably some of the biggest learning moments I've had, and these ones can be super good, is... Uh, leading uh through you know fairly challenge fairly challenging terrain in a whiteout you know you're always thinking oh you know i'm doing this tour i'm doing this traverse or whatever i want the, we the weather to be perfect but you can kind of pick the uh the appropriate terrain where you know even if the weather's not perfect you can go out there and uh use those skills that uh maybe we don't get a chance to use quite so often because we usually try and avoid those situations but you know ultimately i think as a guide um you're going to find yourself in a whiteout and being super confident there uh, is super important. And uh, some of the biggest learning moments I've had have actually been trying to work through, through those challenges. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, that's great. And th th now those two questions kind of tie together. Now, can you think of one specific experience that changed the way you travel in the backcountry and, and, and impacted you in a way in which um, altered how you look at the mountains? Yeah, you know, again, it's a, a, another avalanche near miss. Um, it was kind of a classic setup, you know, so it was like late March, early April ski touring. Uh, not much going on as far as uh, snowpack concerns, other than, you know, there's some discussion of this deep, persistent uh, layer and uh, a surface hoar layer, not, not deep, but a persistent uh, weak layer that had, people had kind of been taking off of the radar, but, you know, I was there and in places and uh we were skiing on the the wapta where our kind of destination was trapper peak we we're going to ski off the summit of trapper peak which is you know it's a pretty real ski um we did a little bit of investigation along the way and we weren't seeing many signs of the surface or you know it was a super cold day so the the deep persistent problem wasn't on our radar and uh, we kind of get our way up to the summit and uh, we do a little ski cut as we're coming into the line, like a, I don't know, more slough, small size one and think, okay, yeah, perfect. Follow it in. And we triggered the whole lower slope. Um, so it had failed on the surface or, and then towards the bottom, it even stepped down. And so for me, that was a huge eye opener in really trying to think about how uh, spatial variability 
um, has an impact on uh, snowpack structure and where the weak layers might be. You know, just because you've actually done some digging doesn't mean that it's necessarily super representative. And uh, you've really got to pick your features, right? I mean, we got lucky there. It would have been entirely possible for us to have just like launched into the line. But we were up there, we were like, oh, no, there's a big chunk of snow here. Let's, uh, let's kick it off and see what happens. But certainly there was enough snow um, right off the summit to just launch right into it. And that probably could have been a fairly negative outcome. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's a good note. That's a good note. Um, what is one tool that you wouldn't go to the backcountry without? Right. I was trying to figure out what the one tool was. Um, so, you know, for me, obviously the, the pertinent uh, avalanche rescue equipment is super important. Um, the, the one thing that I wouldn't go out with, it's actually, I would kind of lump these all together as one item, and that's like a tarp. Uh, or sled, some way to kind of move somebody, um, some, make sure you have some warm layers, not just for yourself, but something that you can actually give up uh, to an injured person, and then thermos fire starter. And so I, I kind of put those all in with uh, emergency equipment um, to deal with that situation that's gone totally sideways. You know, I think it's really easy to forget that uh, if someone's injured, they're not producing heat anymore, they're not going to be able to transport themselves and things can really deteriorate quickly, especially, you know, if it's super cold, right? It's, you know, ski touring is one of those things. If you're an avid uh, winter recreationalist, maybe you're doing some ice climbing and stuff like that. Um, you're saving those ski touring days for when it's like lower or colder than minus 15, minus 20, right? And things just go sideways so quickly um, in those temperatures. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. What's one question I should ask that I didn't? Well, you know, the, I guess some other things that I do, um, because it's not just skiing and, and mountain climbing. Uh, I think it's always good to have uh, a sport that is maybe away from the mountains that kind of allows you a little bit of a break. Maybe you're feeling super taxed mentally or, or whatever. You just need some time away. So I think having something that's outside of the mountains that you really enjoy doing is super important. And for me, that's kiteboarding. Oh, cool. Right on. Yeah, my mom's an avid windsurfer. Well, so is my dad, actually. So, yeah, I, I started out windsurfing as a young lad, and I've watched kiteboarding, and it looks so fun. Yeah, no, I definitely, <laughs> it's a good vent for me. Cool, cool. What does your season look like this year? What do you got on, on tap? Um, so, we're just coming into uh, the ACMG uh, general meetings, so we've got our summit week coming up. Um, I'm delivering a couple of CPDs for the summit week. Uh, we've got board meetings, et cetera. So that's kind of, you know, it's like the end of October grind. Um, I'm actually uh, both excited and a little bit uh, hesitant. Um, we've got our uh, annual uh, general meeting for the IFMGA uh, in Slovakia this year. Um, and obviously, you know, things are still haywire over there so that's i guess where some of the hesitation comes from but anyways it's always great um, to connect with the international community and see what's going on and uh, one of the big topics this year is mountain guiding and climate change and so uh, it's great to see some steps towards that i think um, i, I, I kind of almost feel like we're playing catch up there a little bit and then uh, 
my family and I uh, were resuming our tradition of spending a couple of weeks down south um, kiteboarding. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in December there. And then I get back home and it's ice climbing. Uh, and then it's mechanized skiing, working on uh, the ski touring exams and then some of my own uh, private guiding. That it really seems like, uh, you know, January 1st hits and then all of a sudden, boom, it's like May 1st. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. When the schedules start coming out and you start trying to balance everything. Um, no, that's awesome. That sounds like a fully stacked winter and, and an exciting time. And, well, this has been a great conversation, Mike, and I uh, I super appreciate you taking the time and, and um, sharing your knowledge about the ACMG and sharing your personal knowledge. And I look forward to meeting in person maybe at some point and... Uh, you know, I wish you all the best this season. Yeah, uh, same same to you, Wes. It's nice to uh, meet you. Um, you know, I hope you have a safe winter, and, and thanks to uh, everybody out there for tuning in. Cool. Thanks, man. Well, another great episode in the bank. If you like what you're hearing, then subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, leave us a review to share your appreciation. Or you can reach out to us at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Additionally, if you'd like to share some financial appreciation, we have a new donate function on our website, theavalanchehour.com. These episodes wouldn't be possible without the generous support from our sponsors, Recent Avalanche Control and Six Point Engineering. Let's not forget the great new artwork from Mike T. You can find him at MikeT.com. Music in this episode is provided with permission from the artist, H. Diamante. While you're cruising around on the internets, why not give us a follow on the socials to stay up to date with new and upcoming episodes? As mentioned in the intro, this is a two-part series, so tune in in a few days from now for my interview with CSGA President Aaron Tierney. Thank you for listening. Be kind out there, share your experiences and stories from the mountains to continue to grow this community. Cheers. Cheers.